And he talks with me along life's narrow way. It goes right along with what we're talking about tonight, about the God who speaks. God has spoken. God is speaking. That is not in question. The question is, are we listening? So what is God saying as he speaks? Well, open your Bible to Isaiah 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 20. should be page 517 in the Pew Bible. And when you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's word. So the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which he saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Listen, heavens, and hear earth, for the Lord has spoken. Sons I have raised and brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's manger. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. O sinful nation, people weighed down with guilt, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. Where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? The entire head is sick and the entire heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head there is nothing healthy in it. Only bruises, slashes and raw wounds. Not pressed out, nor bandaged, nor softened with oil. Your land is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. As for your field, strangers are devouring them in front of you. It is desolation as overthrown by strangers. The daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a watchman's hut in a cucumber field, like a city under watch. The Lord of armies had not left us a few survivors. We would be like Sodom. We would be like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your many sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fatted cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courtyards? Do not go on bringing your worthless offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the proclamation of the assembly, I cannot endure wrongdoing. And the festive assembly, I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I'm tired of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you offer many prayers, I will not be listening. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Stop doing evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Obtain justice for the orphan. Plead for the widow's case. Come now and let's debate your case, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall become white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. If you're willing and obedient, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The title of the message is The God Who Speaks. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We praise you. We come tonight to hear from you, from your word. So, Father, tonight let your Holy Spirit come and let him take your word and make it living and active. Speak to us afresh. 
from this passage of Scripture. Let us hear your voice in what is said. Let us see how we ought to respond to what you're saying in this passage. Father, let your your word bear the weight on our lives it ought to bear. Father, help us to to grow in our understanding of, of, of your word. That truly this book, it is your word, the very words of God. Let us grow in our understanding of the greatness, the power, and the holiness of our God. Let us grow in an understanding of how just how terrible our sin, sin in general, truly is. Let us grow in an understanding of how great your salvation is to us. Oh God, speak tonight and strengthen us. Speak tonight and encourage us. Speak tonight and convict us. Speak tonight and refine us until we are who you want us to be. Fill me with your spirit and give me clarity of thought, clarity of speech, that I would speak your words and your ways for your glory. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. So the the key thought in this is the Lord has spoken. Verse 2, for the Lord has spoken. And then says the Lord, declares the Lord, and says the Lord this. These are significant phrases. These are important phrases. These are weighty phrases. And these these phrases must cause the rest of what's said to weigh on us with the proper weight because it is God who is speaking. God is speaking. God has spoken. These are indeed the very words of God. What the book says is what God says. These aren't old words or dead words. These are living words. These are powerful words. These are authoritative words. These are active words. These words are all of these things and more because they are God's words. These words are empowered by the Spirit and give life through the Spirit. And our we've talked about, we've been in this passage for a few weeks and our key thought has been, God is speaking. The question is, are we listening? Now, we have seen from this passage, God is speaking about three things. First, we saw God is speaking about sin. Second, we saw God is speaking about hypocrisy. And then tonight we see God is speaking about salvation. Now, when we think about all that has gone before us in the first 15 verses before we get to where we're going to start in verse 16 tonight, all God has said about their sin, all God has said about their hypocrisy, what we see in verses 16 through 20 ought to amaze us. If you remember, their sin was heinous. It had thoroughly corrupted them. It had bred more sin and more rebellion, and it was all against God. Their hypocrisy was such a stench in the nostrils of God, it made their sacrifices worthless, their worship meaningless, and their prayers powerless. Yet despite their his sin, despite their hypocrisy, the great God is calling them to forsake their sin, forsake their hypocrisy, and come to Him. How great is the mercy and love of our God. When we think about All God has said about sin and hypocrisy. Then what we see in verses 16 through 20 ought to encourage us. Because like the people of Israel, we too have sinned. And our sin is heinous. And our sin has thoroughly corrupted us. And our sin has bred more sin and more rebellion. And like the people of Israel, we have been hypocrites. And our hypocrisy is such a stench in the nostrils of God, it makes our sacrifices worthless, our worship meaningless, and our prayers 
powerless. What we see in verses 16 through 20 ought to encourage us for what God says to Israel through Isaiah. Then he says to us now forsake your sin, forsake your hypocrisy and come to me. What we see in verses 16 through 20 ought to fan the flames of our missionary zeal as we think about what God has said about sin and hypocrisy. For we all know and love people who have sinned and their sin is heinous and their sin has thoroughly corrupted them. Their sin has bred more sin and more rebellion and their sin is all against God. And we also know and love hypocrites and their hypocrisy is such a stench in the nostrils of God. It makes their sacrifices worthless, their worship meaningless and their prayers powerless. What we see in verses 16 through 20 should fan the flames of missionary zeal because what God says to Israel and what God says to us, he says to those we know and love, forsake your sin, forsake your hypocrisy and turn, come to me. God's unchanging, redeeming and pursuing love for sinful humanity is one of the most amazing aspects of God's character. To me, it is something that I think we can not be as in awe of as we ought to be. I think it makes sense for us to think that if there is a God, he would be holy, be different. That if there is a God, he would be powerful. That that makes sense. But to think that there is a God who is holy, who is powerful, and yet he loves those who are rebelling against him. It is something that should sink deep into our hearts. It's something that that should guide how we live our lives. God is forever pursuing sinful humanity, despite our sin, despite our hypocrisy. And as he pursues us, he pursues us for the purpose of salvation. And as he pursues us for the purpose of salvation, he tells us what must happen. One, God says we must repent. Verse 16, it says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Stop doing evil, learn to do good, seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, obtain justice for the orphan, plead for the widow's case. Now, repentance is a change of mind about God and sin resulting in a change of life. And this is exactly what God is calling on them to do here. The evil of their deeds. Is what they're doing. And we could learn kind of what they are doing. Well, they are, what they're doing is not good. They are being unjust towards people. They are oppressing one another. They are ignoring justice for the orphan. And they're ignoring justice for the widow's case. And so God says, stop doing the evil and the wrong that you are doing and start doing the opposite. Start doing good instead of evil. Seek justice rather than injustice. Seek justice rather than be an oppressor. Right? Care about the helpless around you. He is calling on them to stop doing what is wrong and start doing what is right. This is a key aspect of repentance. It is a change of direction. And this change of direction, this change of life is a necessary part of repentance. 
It is such a necessary part of repentance that without it, there is no repentance. And I want to show you this. So we are coming back here, so keep your finger here. But turn to Luke chapter 3. Luke 3 should be page 782. If you have a pew Bible. Luke 3 verse 1. It says, Now in the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar... When Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod the Tetrarch, uh, uh, Herod was Tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip was Tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis and Lysinus, the Tetrarch of Abilene. In the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he came to the region round about Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of or the forgiveness of sin. So, the beginning of John the Baptist ministry is what we're seeing. John, is, John comes and he begins to preach. And his message is a message of repentance. But he tells us what repentance is. Right, look at verse 7. He was saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him. You offspring of vipers. Obviously, John had not read the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. He did not know how to kind of glaze over harsh things. He is speaking very directly to the people. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Well, kind of he did in his preaching. But notice what he goes on to say. Verse 8. Therefore, produce fruit that are consistent with repentance. So, If you're going to flee from the wrath to come, right? You sinners, if you're going to flee from the wrath to come, here's what you do. You let your life produce fruit that are consistent with repentance. Now, a part of this is learning to depend solely upon the Messiah for your salvation, right? He goes on and he says, don't start saying to yourself, we have Abraham for our father. Don't, Don't rest in your lineage as a Jew. That's not going to save you. God can raise up... Children to Abraham from these stones. Don't wait and rest upon that because judgment is coming. The axe is laid at the root of the trees. So every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. So don't, don't rest in anything but the Messiah. And if you do, if you don't repent and produce fruit consistent with genuine repentance, the axe is going to chop you down. You're going to be tossed into the fire. This, this is judgment. That's what he's saying. That if you don't repent, you're going to face judgment. But still, he hasn't explained what repentance looks like. So the crowds began to question him. And they're, they're asking what we would ask. Well, what does that look like? What does it mean to repent? How do I live this out? How do I produce fruit consistent with genuine repentance? What do we do? And he would answer them and say, The one who has two tunics is to share with the one who has none. And the one who has food is to do likewise. So first thing he tells them to those asking is stop being selfish and be generous. Right? They, they weren't to, to care only for themselves any longer, but they were to care for others as well. The fruit consistent with genuine repentance would be to stop caring only about yourself and start caring for others as well. Right? If you have two tunics... Two coats and it's the middle of winter and you see somebody without a coat. Don't say, be warm. I hope you find a coat. 
Give them your extra is what he's saying. If you have if you have more than enough food and you see someone who doesn't have enough, don't say, I hope things improve. Give them your extra. Right. Don't care only about stop caring only about yourself and start doing the opposite. Caring about others. But he tells more Now, even the tax collectors came to him to be baptized. And they said to him, teacher, what are we to do? And the soldiers also were questioning him, saying, what are we to do as well? And he gives them an answer. And his answer is essentially stop oppressing others and treat people justly. If you remember, tax collectors were pretty despised among Jewish people for more than what they are among, say, American people. In Jewish culture of this day, tax collectors were Jewish men who had gone to work for the oppressive Roman government. The unjust oppressive Roman government. They were seen as traitors. But not only were they traitors who had sided with the evil government that was uh, that had conquered them and was oppressing them. They were they were people who themselves were unjust in their dealings with others. See, the way Rome kind of worked is Rome would send out a a list to a tax collector. If I'm the tax collector and you're the people of my town, Rome would say you need to collect a hundred dollars from those people. And so. I would do what I needed to collect at least $100 from you. But Rome didn't care what else I did so long as I sent them $100. If I was able to collect $300 from y'all, Rome didn't care. I got to keep the $200 and I sent them the $100. Now to ensure I squeezed you out of every dollar I could get, I would hire big bruisers. Who were like mafia knee breakers. Right? And their sole purpose was essentially to threaten you, to rough you up, to threaten to break your legs and hurt your family if you didn't cough up just a little bit more money. That was how tax collectors made their living. They made a significant lifestyle for themselves in doing this. Roman soldiers, likewise, were unjust in their dealings with others. Roman soldiers were generally big, burly, and mean. The average Roman soldier was also paid very, very poorly. So what they did to get more money for themselves was to shake down the citizens in the lands Rome conquered. And they would do this through threats of physical violence or threats of accusing them of some crime. Again, if I'm the Roman soldier, I would go to George and I would say, give me $100. And George would say, I ain't going to give you $100, you stupid Roman soldier. And I would say, oh, that sounded like treason. I think you just said death to Caesar. Gosh, when that comes before the judge, they're going to crucify you and your whole family's going to watch you die naked in front of the people. And then George would say, but that's not true. And if I were to take George before the Roman judge, the Roman judge would say, hey, Roman soldier, did he really say that? And I would say, absolutely, he said that. And George would say, I didn't. And they would say, well, I'm not going to believe a Jew. I'm going to believe the Roman. And so they would take George and crucify him. And George News knows that because he's had friends that have had that happen to him. Or he's had friends that said no and multiple Roman soldiers beat them down. And so what most people did was when the soldier said, give me a hundred dollars, they whipped out and they pulled all they had and they gave it to him to keep from being beaten, to keep from being imprisoned, to keep from being falsely accused. So what does John the Baptist say to them? Verse 13, he says the tax collectors 
collect no more than what you've been ordered to collect. Romans 4, or verse 14 to the soldiers. What are we to do as well? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone nor harass anyone. Be content with your wages. So what are they to do? To stop being unjust, stop oppressing, and just start being honest in their dealings. Stop overcharging people in order to lie in their own pockets. Start roughing people up or threatening them to get money. Stop sending, threatening to send people to prison if they don't pay what you want. Stop treating people in this way. So for tax collectors and Roman soldiers, the fruit consistent with genuine repentance was stopping the sin they were doing and start doing the opposite. This is still the fruit consistent with genuine repentance. Now again, John says if you don't repent, if you don't bring forth this fruit, you're going to be judged. So imagine with me for a second. One of these Roman soldiers, one of these tax collectors, they go to John to be baptized. They say they've repented, they're going to believe in the Messiah. They go out, they go under the water, they get up. The tax collector goes back to his booth and immediately begins to oppress the people to bleed them out of more than extra. The Roman soldier immediately gets up, goes out, finds the first Jew he can, beats him up and takes his money. Have those people legitimately repented? The answer is, of course, no. They haven't. His baptism was meaningless because he didn't mean it. He had not legitimately repented and judgment was going to fall upon him. The axe was at the root. It was going to be chopped down. He would be tossed into the fire. This idea of repentance and the necessity of bearing fruit consistent with genuine repentance is not emphasized in our day as much as it should be. Think about what fruit consistent with genuine repentance would look like in our day. Stop lying and tell the truth. Stop getting drunk and be sober. Stop gossiping and let stories die with you. Stop cheating on your spouse and be faithful. Stop this. Start the opposite. You get the idea. Now, if a tax collector who went right back to cheating didn't repent, and a Roman soldier who went right back to threatening didn't repent, what does it say about a liar who goes right back to lying? What does it say about a gossip who goes right back to gossiping? Or a drunk who goes right back to drinking? Or a cheater who goes right back to cheating? Did they genuinely repent? No. No, they did not. And this is where we have the massive breakdown in our day. People hear the gospel. They hear the message, the call of God to come to him and be saved. They claim to receive the gospel through repentance and faith, but then they leave and they go right back to the sin that they came out of. And that would be one thing. But what happens is what's worse. Well-meaning but ill-informed Christians then go to them and say, well, it's okay. Nobody's perfect. And they don't encourage them to bring forth fruit consistent with genuine repentance. Tell them they're saved, that everything is okay, when really it's not okay. They are still, judgment is still coming for them, for they have not legitimately repented. We don't see that mindset in God's word. The mindset in God's word is that the proof of repentance is always in the pudding of the changed life. Repentance always involves a changed life. And where there is no change, where sin stays the same, there is no repentance. There is no salvation. Repentance always motivates us to live 
differently. Now, some will push back against this and reject it. Go ahead and turn back to Isaiah and say, well, I, I, that sounds like a work and we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus. We're not by works. And, and, and that's true. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, not of works, lest any man should boast. However, when we try to pit repentance against faith or the necessity of bearing fruit consistent with repentance against faith, we're making two very critical mistakes. One is to assume faith is nothing more than accepting certain facts to be true. The other is to assume genuine faith isn't shown by actions. Knowing the facts isn't really faith. It's not faith until I act on it. This is exactly what God's word tells us in the book of James about faith without works being dead. James is pretty clear. A faith that doesn't produce works is not faith at all. It is not the kind of faith that saves. There is absolutely no tension between salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, and the necessity of bearing fruit consistent with genuine repentance. This tension is manufactured, not by God's word, not by the spirit of the living God, but by those who want to minimize the necessity of bearing fruit consistent with genuine repentance. God's word says, God says, we must repent. This is what God says about salvation, about our salvation, the salvation of people in our community and our nation and the salvation of people we know and love. Are we listening to what God is saying about salvation? Secondly, God says we must be washed. Verse 18, come now, let us debate your case, says the Lord, though your sins are as scarlet. They shall become white as snow, though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. Now, this is probably one of the more well-known passages in the book of Isaiah, especially chapter one. And it's a pretty neat work picture. It's my understanding that crimson dye was just about the darkest dye of the day. And once the dye was on something, it was basically impossible to get out. The point God's making is sin has left a stain on us. And the stain sin has left on us is dark and it's deep. And there are no normal mortal means by which this stain can be removed. You and I cannot remove the stain of our sin on our own. Only God can wash us. Only God can can cleanse us. Only God can remove the stain of sin. And the good news is God can do it and God will do it no matter how deep or how dark the stain of sin is. If the stain is to be removed, if we're to be washed and made white, it must be done by God. And the New Testament assures us as well as here that God does this. He saves us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. Again, it's not about what we have done. But according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Now, one of the reasons I use this passage, there's others I could have used, but I like this one. 
because it talks about the, the continuing nature of washing. First, it speaks of the washing of regeneration. This happens when a person initially repents of their sins and believes on the Lord Jesus Christ. This is regeneration. Jesus calls it being born again in John chapter 3. But either way, no matter whether you call it regeneration or new birth, it is the, the same work of the same Spirit through the same faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the work of the Spirit where we are made into a new creation. And all the old things are passed away. It is a work of the Spirit where we are made new and given spiritual and eternal life in exchange for our death. It is a washing away of our sins and a giving us a righteousness. A taking away the red crimson stain and making us like wool or white as snow. There's nothing you or I could do to bring about this kind of change in our lives. We can't be religious enough to do it. We can't be moral enough to do it. We can't have enough self-control to do it. This is only done by the Spirit of God as we come to, as we come to God through faith in Jesus. We must be washed. We must be regenerated. But God's Word here not only talks about the, the regeneration, but also the renewing of the Holy Spirit. This is the work we typically call sanctification, but it is also a work of the Spirit. Sanctification is the process of becoming more like Jesus. In sanctification, the Holy Spirit works to change the heart, the mind, and the very nature of disciples of Jesus so they will be more and more like Christ. Now, part of what we should see with this is God is always at work to change us. God is always at work to make us more like Jesus. Now, both regeneration and the renewing of the Spirit are both part of salvation and could both be called washing. There is the initial washing and then there is the continual washing, taking away our sin, washing away our iniquities, making us more like Christ, more pure, more holy, more set apart for the work of God. Regeneration is once for all. It is done at salvation and it is forever done. The regenerate or the, the sanctification, the renewing is a constant work of the Spirit in us. So God, the Holy Spirit, is always at work in our lives. He is at work to draw us to Jesus. So we'll repent of our sins, believe on Jesus, and He can wash us and regenerate us. And if we have come to Jesus and been saved, He is in us, working in us, drawing us to Jesus so that we can be washed and renewed and made more and more like Jesus. He is always at work in our lives trying to change us and make us more of what we are intended to be. This is what God is saying about salvation. Our salvation, the salvation of people in our community, the salvation of our loved ones. Are we listening? And then finally, God says we must choose wisely. Verse 19 and 20, God lays out what he's saying about salvation and he leaves it with them to choose. If you're willing and obedient, you'll eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, I like God makes it clear one choice is infinitely better than the other. If we choose to be willing and obedient, the consequence, the result of that is 
the blessings of God, eating the best of the land. And eating the best of the land is infinitely better than being devoured by the sword, which comes by refusing and rebelling. Now, it's important to notice they can't mix and match. They can't refuse and rebel and then choose the blessings of God for their life. If they choose to resist, to refuse and rebel, then they bring the sword upon themselves. If they want the blessings of God, the the eating the best of the land, they must be willing and obedient. They must do what God wants them to do. The choice they make in response to this one overarching message God has given them determines the results they will see in their lives. This is true for us as well. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, this will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. The one who sows to the Spirit from the Spirit reaps eternal life. Choices have consequences. We cannot choose to live in the flesh and expect to reap from the Spirit. The harvest we reap is entirely dependent upon the seed we choose to sow. We are all going to reap a harvest. That's not a question. What are we going to reap? Well, what we're going to reap depends on what we're sowing. If we sow the flesh, we reap one thing. If we sow the spirit, we reap something else. I like, I think it's always important to notice, he starts with do not be deceived. He does that because Paul knows human nature. God who inspired Paul knows human nature. Every human thinks they're the exception to whatever rule there is. Right? You just think about in, in say, driving. I think I probably said this before. But if you're driving down Sunset Lane and somebody flies past you at 40 miles an hour, you want them to get a ticket. And if they do, you think, that's right. I'm glad they got the ticket. On the other hand, if if we're running late and we're driving 40 miles an hour down Sunset Lane and we get pulled over, what do we say? Don't they have anything else they could be doing right now than harassing a law-abiding citizen like me? Why do we say that? Because we think we're the exception to the rule. right? It was right and just for them to get the ticket. But we had a solid reason. There was a, it was a, here's why I was flying down the, the street. I should be the exception to which God says, do not be deceived. But I think also another way we see this is in relation to those we love. When we had the school, we were forever having having chances where a family would complain about a kid in the class who was doing this and disrupting the class or hindering their student. And they wanted the hammer brought down on that kid. But then if their kid did the same thing and we brought the hammer down on them, it was an unjust action. They wanted their kid to be the exception to the rule. And that's how we are with spiritual things as well. Either I should be the exception and I'm going to sow to the flesh and reap of the spirit. Or my children or people I love, they should be able to sow to the flesh and reap the spirit. They'll be the exception. To which God says through Paul, don't be deceived. God will not be mocked in that way. You will reap what you sow. I won't be the exception. You won't be the exception. 
Our loved ones won't be the exception. This is what God is saying about salvation. Our salvation, the salvation of people in our community and nation, the salvation of our loved ones. Are we listening? Each of us must make our own choice about how to respond to what God is saying about sin, hypocrisy, and salvation. Because overall, this is should have been one, one message, but it would have been three hours long. So God is saying these things about sin. He is saying these things about hypocrisy and these things about salvation. We have heard them, and now we have to choose. How are we going to respond? Now, I have to respond for me, and I can't respond for you. And you have to respond for you and you can't respond for me. And we can't respond for anyone but ourselves. But there's good news with this. It's great news, in fact. God wants us to choose Him. God wants us to be willing and obedient and eat the best of the land. He does not want us to refuse and rebel so that the sword must come upon us. He wants us to sow to the Spirit and not the flesh. He wants us to reap blessings from the Spirit instead of destruction from the flesh. He wants us to make the right choice. We see this all throughout God's Word. Deuteronomy, Paul, or Paul, Moses says, I've set before you prosperity and death and adversity, or life and prosperity, death and and adversity. He goes on and talks a little bit later. He says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So it's like this. I've set before you. Here's what's right. Here's what's wrong. Here's where life is. Here's where death is. But notice what it, how it ends. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants. God lays this out not so that we will rebel and choose death and He can be like, ha ha, got Him. He, he lays it out so that we will clearly see it and we will say, wow, life is infinitely better than death. Prosperity is infinitely better than the sword. I choose this the way God wants me to choose. We see it in, in the book of Ezekiel. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. Why will you die? I I love, I love that verse. Turn back, turn back. There's, you, you almost sense, I know God doesn't panic, but when I read it, I sense urgency. In that turn, turn. And, and, the, and the last part seems like this act such futility. Why? Why are you going to die? Why? When I'm here and I'm offering salvation and repentance and I'm, I'm going to do all of this for you. If you will just come. Why will you choose to die? Why? When you know it's life and death. Why do you choose death? Why would you do that? There is an an urgency and almost a desperation in God in this. I think you see it here too. If you're willing and obedient. I mean, God could not paint this in any more starker contrast 
If you respond and come to me, you get all of this. But if you refuse and rebel, there's nothing but judgment. Come. The choices are before us. Hear and heed what God says about sin. Hear and heed what God says about hypocrisy. Hear and heed what God says about salvation. Or refuse and rebel against what God says about sin. Refuse and rebel against what God says about hypocrisy. Refuse and rebel about what God says about salvation. The choice is ours. But if we could see God, we would see Him standing on the side of life and blessing and salvation, pleading with us to come over here, pleading with us to repent, pleading with us to stop and start and come to Him and let Him wash us, renew us, regenerate us, whatever the need would be. But it is our choice. As we think about what we've talked about, we should be amazed at the greatness of God's mercy towards sinful, rebellious humanity. This should encourage us because even when we are sinful, rebellious humans, God is for us, wanting us to choose Him, to repent, to be washed, and to experience His blessings in our life. This should fuel our, the flame of missionary zeal because no matter how sinful, how rebellious, how hypocritical someone is, God is for them. He is wanting them to choose Him, to repent, to be washed, and experience His blessings in their life. What choices will we make tonight? Let's pray. Our Father, we love You.